is can God really say, uh, can God really forgive me? Can God really forgive me? Today what I want to do, I want to talk about grace. And I want to talk about how grace enters in to the kingdom of darkness around us. Jesus taught so much about the kingdom of heaven, every parable that he talked about, uh, he talked about the kingdom of heaven, and he even taught us how to pray concerning the kingdom. You might remember Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your what? Kingdom come. Jesus was all about helping us understand that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, far outweighs the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of Satan. And he also talks about how they impact each other uh, throughout all of human history and even beyond that. This morning there are four interlocking stories that I want us to look at in our scripture text. Mark chapter 3 is where we're going to be uh, this morning, uh, beginning verse 20 down to verse 34. And just like a chain, you may have a chain, a necklace, or own a, a chain, just like a chain that has many interlocking uh, loops in it, there are four interlocking stories that just run together through this section of Scripture. And I want you to uh, follow along with me this morning as we understand the kingdom of heaven and grace from the kingdom of heaven and how it speaks in and impacts our lives. Now let's pick up beginning uh, in the story, and I begin talking about the kingdom, or actually the kingdoms, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of darkness, and the Lord's family. Now as we run through this story, uh, we're going to see the Lord's family at the beginning, we're going to see them at the end, but begin reading with me verse 20 and 21 of our scripture text, Mark chapter 3. It says, Then Jesus entered a, a house. And again, a crowd gathered so that his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Several things about verse 20 that I want you to notice. Number one, the Bible says Jesus entered a house. We believe that this was in the town of Capernaum. In fact, one translation said Jesus entered his house. Uh, actually, it was uh, Jesus was no longer living in the house he grew up in in Nazareth, but he had changed his uh, 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 his uh, center or base of operations, according to Mark chapter one verse twenty nine, to the city of Capernaum and the house of James and John, and that's probably where this story takes place. Now, verse twenty. Second thing I want you to see is that a large crowd gathered. That's exactly the same large crowd that. Uh, we read about in verse chapter 3 and verse 7. It seemed like everywhere Jesus went, crowds of people came and they pressed around him all the time. And it says in verse 20, third thing I want you to see is that neither Jesus nor his disciples were even able to eat. Now from time to time I talk to young ministers and, and, uh, who are having to struggle in uh, working as hard as they ought to work. I want to tell you something, ministry is the type of position that you can work yourself to death lots of hours 
Or you can kind of slack if you want to. I mean, nobody sees you except on Sunday morning, right? And as long as you prepare for Sunday, everybody says, man, that guy must be a hardworking guy. But I want to tell you, not everybody works hard in the ministry. I try to. I, I, I work solid hours. Uh, man, I will put in 50 hours every week, and, and uh, uh, at least that's bare minimum. And, uh, but, but a lot, I, I counsel a lot of young ministers who, who just kind of want to slack when it comes to ministry. And I will point to verses like this that talk about Jesus' attitude toward ministry. And the Bible says that Jesus sacrificed to the point that he didn't have time to eat, he didn't have time to sleep. And anybody that's going to be involved in ministry of any kind needs to understand it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be simple. It's about working hard. As a matter of fact, I believe ministers ought to work harder than anybody else around them because they're working for the King of Kings. Verse 21 says, when his family heard about this, Now, the relationship between Jesus and his family is a fascinating study. We read about it here in other places in the New Testament, but I want you to understand that while Jesus does indeed acknowledge the fifth commandment, you know what that is? Honor your father and your mother. While Jesus acknowledges that, we see that his kingdom impacts the relationship that he has with his own physical family because of the new kingdom allegiances that he is building with his disciples and others. You might remember Luke chapter 2 and verse 46. The scripture there is the story when Jesus and his family had had gone to visit the temple in Jerusalem, and uh, he was about 12 years old, and his parents all started back on the journey back uh, to their hometown in Nazareth. But Jesus wasn't in the crowd uh, uh, traveling along. And whether or not you'd say they were good parents or not for not knowing where their son was is not really the issue. But again, looking around, they couldn't find Jesus. Do you remember where they found Jesus? In the temple. And Jesus says, why on earth were you searching for me? Didn't you know I would be in my father's house and about my father's business? Luke chapter 12, verse 49 through 53, Jesus again talks about the relationship between family and, uh, uh, and the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom allegiances that being part of the kingdom of, of heaven bring about. When he says there, he said, I don't think that I've come uh, to bring peace to the earth. As a matter of fact, I haven't come to bring peace at all, but I've come to bring a fire. And that fire, Jesus says, will bring division even in the very families that you reside in. Jesus said, mom will be separated from uh, uh, children and dad will be separated from children and family members won't see eye to eye, not because of of, of some uh, sort of problem with the disciples' life, but because a person chooses to follow Jesus, no longer are they welcome at home. Folks, I want to tell you, I could name, I would not dare do, do so, but I could name several people right within our own congregation that years ago when they chose to accept Jesus as Savior of their life and really become committed followers of Jesus, they were no longer welcome in their homes. Mom and Dad put them out. All around the world today, that's happening every single day as people in nations all around the world where being a, becoming a Christian is not a free choice and they're accepting Jesus Christ and it, they are accepting Jesus Christ uh, at the expense of losing their families. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He says, you're going to raise the ante of following me. At times, you will have to make a choice between family allegiances and even kingdom allegiances. And Jesus experienced that tough decision right here in the story. Read verse 21. 
It says in verse 21, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he's out of his mind. I got to ask you the question, who is they and that they were saying? I got to tell you, it was the same day that I used to use to my mom all the time when I say, Mom, they're all doing this. Anybody ever do that before? You know what I'm talking about, all right? Uh, it's the, that they that you never see, but they were all talking, and the idea was they were repeatedly saying, they were saying, Jesus is out of his mind. And the Bible says his, his uh, mom and his brothers were on their way to take Jesus home because he wasn't eating well, he wasn't sleeping well, he needed a break, and to them, their son just needed to come home and come to a census because he was out of his mind. Now, it's 40 miles between Nazareth, where Jesus' family lived, and Capernaum, where Jesus was. About a two-day trip. And Mark uses, right here, there's a perfect example of a literary tool that Mark uses over and over and over again where he intermingles two different stories. And it's like he just pauses that story. Jesus' parent, mom and brothers were on the way, and he pauses that story. It's like a big parenthesis, and Jesus tells another story in the midst of the story. Jesus will come back to his family, but we're going to leave that for right now. The kingdom and the Lord's family. Second thing I want you to notice in the story is the kingdom or the kingdoms, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this, of this world and the Lord's accusers. We read about that in verse 22 down to verse 23. Read with me verse 22. In verse 22 it says, And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, Jesus is possessed by Beelzebub. I'll talk to you about that in just a second. And by the prince of demons, Jesus is driving out demons. Now the teachers of the law had been critical of Jesus on many, many occasions. They criticized him for healing on the Sabbath day. They criticized him uh, for claiming to be God. But here I want you to understand that they raised the ante on their accusations against Jesus to a level that never, never before uh, in Jesus' ministry. They bring two charges against Jesus. And these are serious charges. Serious charges. Serious spiritual charges. Number one, they say he is possessed by Beelzebub. Literally, he is possessed by the god of the flies or the god of dung. Kind of makes sense if you understand uh, that, but but that was the ancient uh, god of Beelzebub. Now that name, you need to understand, is one of Satan's many names in Scripture. Do you realize that Uh, The Bible calls Satan the accuser. He's referred to as the adversary. He's the angel of light. Satan is called the enemy. He's called the father of lies. He's called Lucifer. He's called the murderer. He's called the prince of the power of the air. He's called the ruler of of this dark world. He's called the serpent, the tempter, and the thief. And literally, Jesus' accusers come and say, Jesus is possessed by Satan himself. That's a serious charge. But then they go on to make a second equally serious charge. And that is, it is by the authority of Satan himself that Jesus is driving out demons. 
Now, folks, I want you to understand the seriousness of the charge and understand the seriousness of the power of Satan in, in our world today, even in, in impacting our own lives. Oftentimes we say to ourselves, well, Satan is not really all that powerful. You know, something we talk about at Halloween. Uh, yeah, there, there might be a devil. Maybe there's not a devil. I'm not so sure about that. But, folks, I want you to understand that Satan is very much alive and powerfully active in our world today. I experienced his power just the other day. Let me tell you this story. You can believe it or not. It's your choice. I was studying uh, this section of scripture the other day, and, and, and I got to this point where it talked with the accusations and, uh, against Jesus that he's possessed by Beelzebub and by the prince of the demons, he's driving out demons. And I thought to myself, you know, I, I need to go back through and study through the names of Satan and, and scripture that I shared with you a few minutes ago. I went through all of those just boom, like, like that. But I, I'd gone through and I'd studied all those passages of scripture, and, and, I, and I was working through all of that. I wanted to, uh, to understand uh, uh, who Satan was. I decided not to go into that very deeply with you for a reason, spiritual reason, and I'll tell you why. As I got into that study, and I was about 15 minutes into that study, going through studying name after name after name after name after name, you can believe this or not, I'd had a perfectly beautiful day that day, uh, no problems, no health issues, no pain, no nothing. And like that, my eyes went so blurry, I could not see the words on a page. I prayed, didn't seem like it helped. I said, you know, I just need to put this away and take a break. And I think I went to Starbucks for a cup of coffee or something, I, I, I don't know. You can say to yourself, oh, that's a bunch of hogwash, that's a bunch of hooey, but I want you to understand that Satan is actively involved in your life. And if you don't believe that, he has you right where he wants you to be, totally captivated by his kingdom. We read this section of scripture, Jesus explains this spiritual conflict by asking a question, then he gives three parables, parables and then he gives a very, very strong warning. Now a parable, i got to give this to you, a parable is a story, a short illustri illustrative story where uh, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Every one of Jesus' parables is about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, they're one and the same. And Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like, and he'll tell a story. Or the kingdom of God is like, and he'll tell a story. What he's trying to do is get us to understand that even though we're living in this world and the, uh, we're living in a world controlled by the kingdom of, uh, 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 of the evil one, he wants us to understand how his kingdom is breaking in and breaking through the kingdom of heaven's life. So Jesus asks a question, he tells three quick parables, and then he gives a strong warning in this section of Scripture. Let's study together. The question is found in verse 23. It's kind of common sense, kind of logical question. Here are the question that Jesus gives. He says, so Jesus called them together and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? That's a common sense logical question. The answer to the question is obvious. If Satan's working against himself, it just doesn't make any sense. Satan can't drive out Satan. Logical question, Jesus is asking. How is that possible? He goes on to give three quick parables. Parable number one, verse 24. He says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, it cannot stand. Makes sense. Kingdom going against itself, it cannot stand. Uh, stand. Abraham Lincoln quoted that verse of Scripture in, during the Gettysburg event, uh, address. Parable number two, verse 25. 
He says, if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Many of us have experienced division in our houses, our homes, our families, and a family divided against itself cannot stand strongly. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. Parable number three, verse 27. In fact, no one can enter into a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man and then he can rob his house. You see what Jesus is saying? Very simple. If I want to come rob your house, I've got to be stronger than you. I've got to have more weapons than you. I've got to be able to overpower you. That's what he's saying about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Satan. He said it would be impossible for Satan to go to war against himself. It just wouldn't make any sense. In fact, a kingdom divided against itself would not stand, and Satan wants his kingdom to stand, and so he wouldn't do that against himself. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, if anyone is going to step into a person's life and drive a demon out of his life, he says, I've done that many, many times. He said, I've got to be stronger than the one that I'm, uh, that I'm opposing. Then Jesus moves from that question and three parables to making a very very dramatic warning. Now, I want to tell you uh, right up front, don't let your eyes glaze over because we're going to have to go into a little bit of theology here to understand what Jesus is talking about. But you are smart people. You can dig in. You can go with me on this. Do not go to sleep, though. This section of Scripture talks about what the Bible calls the unpardonable sin. All right? Jesus, Jesus says, talks about that in relationship uh, of this conversation. In verse 28, and 29 and 30, listen to what Jesus says. And this is the warning. He says, I tell you the truth, all sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven by them, why, uh, of them. Why? Because of grace, kingdom grace. All sins can be forgiven. It doesn't matter what sin you've committed, your sin can be, commit, uh, can be forgiven. But verse 29. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He's guilty of an eternal sin. And he said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. From time to time, I have individuals come to me and say, uh, uh, Preacher, I, I'm concerned that I've committed the unpardonable sin, that God couldn't forgive me. I've gone too far. I've done too much. I've stepped across the line too many times. And God could not forgive me. I've committed an unpardonable sin. Let's dig into that and to be able to understand this unpardonable sin you really got to understand it from two different contexts. Write it down. First, the context of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're not going to have time to look at all these passages of Scripture, but I want you to understand what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is in your life. And I could spend days on this, but I only want to throw out three or four things that the Holy Spirit does in your life. Write it down. Number one, the Holy Spirit is a counselor to remind me of what Jesus taught. In John chapter 14, verse 26, that's exactly what Jesus says. The Holy Spirit comes to remind us and help us dig into what, the, uh, what uh, Jesus taught. Is there anybody here that ever has difficulty understanding the Bible? Raise your hand. If you ever had difficulty understanding All right. We all do. You know why? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 uh, and chapter 2, uh, perhaps rather, and he says the reason we have difficulty understanding the Scripture is because there are spiritual concepts 
written by the Spirit of God in spiritual words to spiritual people. Now think about that. The only way to understand these spiritual words is to have the Holy Spirit inside of you. Research that section of Scripture. One of the reasons why you struggle so much with understanding even the basic things of Scripture is because you're not leaning on the presence of the Holy Spirit within your life. The Holy Spirit, number one, comes to be a counselor to remind us of the teachings of Jesus and help us to understand what it's all about. Number two, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 26 and 27, Romans chapter 8, verse 26 and 27, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is an intercessor for believers, that's you and me, an intercessor in prayer for believers to bring our unspeakable prayer requests to God. Read that on your own. The longer I have been a follower of Jesus Christ, the less I talk when I'm uh, in, in my prayer time with God. Anybody identify with this? Prayer is about telling God what I want or what I think. And prayer ends the moment I stop yakking. Have, have you ever done that? Okay, God, I want this, I want that. Help me do this, do that. And you, know, and you never shut up long enough for anybody, uh, for, uh, anybody else to do any talking. Now the scripture says, Romans chapter 8, verse 26 and 27, I'm not making this stuff up. It says that when we don't know what to pray for, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Folks, I have learned that I hardly ever know what to pray for. Hardly ever. I don't know what I need. And even when I think I know what I need, I almost always mess it up by asking for something that I don't really need anyway. Especially when I'm praying for somebody else, I don't know what to pray for. And oftentimes, my prayers are totally done in silence. And oftentimes, I hear the Spirit of God interceding for me with groans, verbal groans that I can't even express with words. Now you may say that's weird if you want to, but that's what the Bible says, all right? You fight against God, not against me on theology, all right? So study that. Think about that. I, I'm, I'm wanting you to think about this, all right? This is deep stuff. Number three, the Holy Spirit is a transformer of the disciple's heart. Transformer of the disciple's heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 and 18 says that the Holy Spirit works within us to transform us into the image of, of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, Romans 8, 29 says that he works especially in the difficulties of our life to change us into the image of Jesus. Have anybody as a Christian ever experienced suffering? Raise your hand. Ever. Things you don't understand. And wish they would stop. Yes. Folks, look at me. I want you to see this. I want you to understand this. The Holy Spirit, once you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit's job is to change you into the image of Jesus, all right? And you don't have anything to say with that, uh, about that. That's going to happen whether you go easy or kicking or screaming, all right? But the Holy Spirit will use the difficult times in your life to shape your heart into the image of Jesus. You know why? Because when you get to heaven one day, if you get to heaven one day, the Lord wants you to look a whole lot more like Jesus than he does like Satan. Can I get a hello on that? And too many church folks look a whole lot more like the enemy than they do about 
than they do looking like the Son of Jesus Christ, all right? So when you're under those pressure kinds of times and everything is falling apart, rather than whine and say, God, get me out of this mess, maybe your prayer ought to be, God, what are you trying to change in me through this mess, all right? And uh, that's a good prayer. But there's one last thing that I want to give you here, and that is that, 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 that the Holy Spirit is a convictor of sin. He is the convictor of, of sin. Don't have time to read this, but just jot down, if you would, John chapter 16, verse 7 to 12. John chapter 16, verse 7 to 12. There it says that the Holy Spirit comes to convict us of our sin. Now, we've all felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and sometimes we beat ourselves up because we get the conviction of the Holy Spirit over the same sin over and over and over again. I get so tired of the Holy Spirit convicting me of the same thing that He convicted me of last week. Anybody say hello on that? You know what I'm talking about, you know? It just happens over and over and over again, and sometimes I think to myself, I am such a failure. I will never get this right. I've gone too far. Maybe God's going to give up on me and turn His back on me and say, I'm done with Wheeler enough. He can't do it right, so I'm just going to stop trying. One of uh, uh, my favorite writers, and this brings me to the other uh, context of understanding this sin of the, uh, 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 of the unpardonable sin, is you've got to understand the sinner's blatant rejection of grace. Because the Holy Spirit's ministry and the sinner's blatant rejection of grace go hand in hand to understand this concept. One of my favorite theological writers is a guy by the name of John Piper, who my daughter Bessie introduced me to many years ago, and he has the best definition of what the sin of the uh, unpardonable sin is, and I just want to read the definition. Listen closely. Let me read his definition of this. He says, forgiveness, and I quote, forgiveness of sins is available for all sins, without exception, on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The only unforgivable sin is the sin that we refuse to confess and to forsake. We commit the unforgivable sin when we cleave or hold on to a sin so long and so tenaciously that we no longer confess it as sin or turn away from it. The eternal sin is the resistance against the Holy Spirit's convicting work in our lives to the point that He withdraws from us leaving the sinner in a helplessness, a helpless hardness of heart, incapable of repentance. Folks, let me put it to you this way, real simply. If you ever concern yourself with the fact that you have committed a sin so grievous that God could not forgive you, you have not committed the unpardonable sin, all right? God loves you. And as long as you're repentant, as long as you're sorrowful for sin, as long as you are convicted for sin, no matter what it is, no matter how many times you have done that same sin, God's still working in your heart, and you've not stepped across this line. Now, if you have deep questions about that, I'm hoping you do, because this is a deep issue. And I'm hoping that you'll dig into Scripture the things that I've given you today and go deeper in what I've talked to you about. I want to go to the third part of the story. And that is the kingdoms, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of darkness, and the Lord's grace. That's described in verse 31 down to verse 34. 
Back in Mark chapter 3, verse 31 to 34, uh, the scripture begins this way. You remember Jesus' family left Jesus. They went away, and while they were, uh, I'm sorry, uh, they were on their way to take Jesus home. And while they were on their way, Jesus has this interaction with the teachers of the law, and he, he gives this, does this theological teaching that we just shared. And, and by the way, if you say, you know, I should never come to church and have to think, can I tell you what I hated being around Jesus? Because every time anybody was around Jesus, people went away with a brain cramp saying, oh my goodness, I've got to think about what Jesus said for the next four weeks to figure out all the depth of what he just said, all right? So I do not apologize for that. Jesus didn't either. But he comes in verse 31. In verse 31, it says, Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. Isn't that interesting? They arrived and they were standing outside. They were refusing to enter the house because of a past decision that they had made. It's kind of like a couple who's in an argument with each other and said, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to give an inch. I expect you to give. I'm not going to give. And they're loggerheads. That's exactly his family. They're standing outside, outside, refusing to come in. The question is, what was causing this hardness? Write down John chapter 7. And verse 5. Don't have time to read this. John chapter 7 verse 5 said it was their unbelief. They did not believe that Jesus really was the Messiah. They caused them to dig in their feet. And when they got to the door, rather than walk across the threshold of the door into the house, taking their son by the hand and saying, come home with us uh, because we love you, they stood outside the door and they said, someone go in there and tell Jesus his mom and, uh, and brothers are out here. Tell him to come out. We're ready to take him out. Standing outside the house. Do you realize that that's one of the key images that Jesus uses to describe a lost person in hell? He said a lost person in hell is in outer darkness, outside where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now the question is, what would Jesus do? Would he bend and accept, uh, you know, the authority of his mom and his brothers and, uh, and just bend just to keep the peace? That's what most Christians do. But folks, I want you to understand, Jesus was never a peacekeeper. He was always a peacemaker, and there's a major difference there. You see, Jesus always brings about peace, not just by leaving us alone and leaving our sin on the shelf and not dealt with, but Jesus wades right into the midst of the conflict of our souls to bring kingdom grace into our lives, into our brokenness, into our messed up marriages, and even into our addictions. And there it is that he gives us grace. Now, Jesus blows the crowds away with what he does in the statement that he makes in the next couple of verses. Read verse 31 again. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived and they were standing on the outside standing uh, uh, and they sent someone to call uh, Jesus and the crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you and watch this. And Jesus asked, who are my mother and my brothers? Then he looked around at the crowd seated around him in a circle And he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mothers and mother. A crowd was sitting around. Who was in the crowd? That was the same crowd that was always sitting around Jesus. 
There was a crowd that kept him from eating and sleeping. There were broken people. There were hurting people. There were throwaway people. There were messed up losers. They were sinners always around Jesus. Now, how would Jesus react? He's in this room with a bunch of sinners all around him. His mom and his brothers are at the door. They're knocking and saying, tell him his mom and brothers are at the door. Have him come out and meet us. And Jesus looks around. He says, who are my mother and brothers? They're these folks right here. Not the ones on the outside. Do you understand what Jesus is doing? He's risking separating a relationship even with his own mother, even with his own brothers until they get what the kingdom of God is all about. Because being part of the kingdom of God is not uh, about your lineage. It's not about who your mom and daddy is. It's not about the house that you live in, but it's about has grace come into your life or not? How would his family react? Would they be angry? Would there be a resentment that he would never see them or talk to them again? Folks, I want you to understand that Jesus was willing to risk everything to bring kingdom grace even to his mom and brothers on the outside. How would they respond? Well, nobody knew at that point in time. How would they respond? But the New Testament describes it for us. Do you realize in Acts chapter 1 and verse 13, it says that the original prayer group that got together after the ascension and they prayed and they prayed and they prayed for the Holy Spirit to come and for the church to begin, that Mary, Mary is named as one of those. Jesus' mother. Do you realize that in Acts chapter 15 when it's describing uh, uh, the church leadership, the church at Jerusalem, that James... James, one of Jesus' half-brothers, is mentioned as pastor of the Jerusalem church. And in the, book of the, in the New Testament toward the end, the book of James itself is written by this same brother of Jesus. I don't know whether you know this or not, the last, next last uh, book of your Bible is a book uh, by the name of Jude. You know who wrote that book of Jude? It was Jesus' half-brother, one of his other half-brothers, Jude. You see, Jesus was willing to risk it all to give them the chance to step over a line of faith and accept kingdom grace. And they did, and they stepped into the kingdom of God. That leads us to one last, one last story, and that is your story. The kingdoms, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of this world, and your story. Friend, let me ask you honestly, is there division in any relationships that you have? That's the kingdom of darkness at work. Do you struggle with a stronghold, sinful addiction in your life that you just can't break? Friend, that is nothing more than the kingdom of this dark world trying to hold you captive uh, from the grace of Jesus. Is there a hole in the middle of your heart, an emptiness that you're saying, man, there's got to be more than this? Folks, I want you to understand that's captivity by the kingdom of darkness. We're going to gather together around the Lord's table here in just a second to remember what Jesus did when he came into the world and Jesus came into the world to break in the kingdom of light into the kingdom of darkness. And as he did that, he went to the cross. And when he went to the cross, 
He gave us the opportunity to know forgiveness of sins. And we gather together around the Lord's table. And the guys are going to come in here in just a few minutes. They're going to pass around trays. Uh, there'll be a little tray of bread. You can take that and eat it. Pray a, a, tray of, uh, a little a tray of cups. You can take the cup and drink the juice and remember what Jesus did for you. But if you might remember, the Lord's Supper was instituted around a table. And the reality is all of us have folks that are close to us, friends, loved ones, people on our street, family members that aren't around the Lord's table today. They've wandered away from Jesus. They don't know who he is. Maybe they've never accepted him as Savior of their life or their prodigals. And I just want us to bow just humbly before the Lord and pray for people that are not around the table this morning. If you are physically capable of taking a knee this morning, would you do that this morning? Take a knee with me. Let's pray together. If you can't, just stay right where you are. Lord Jesus, we bow before you this morning acknowledging you as the uh, captain of our faith and uh, the uh, ruler of the kingdom of light. And Father, we have family members and friends and people that live on our street and people that we work with that are so captivated, captured by the kingdom of darkness that they've never accepted Jesus as Savior of their life. And Father, I we just pray that you would do what it takes to draw them to the foot of the cross and cause them to step across the line of faith and accept Jesus as Savior. Father, there are people in our own families that uh, do not know Jesus as Savior or they've wandered away from, uh, uh, from a relationship with him. We just pray, Father, that you would move in their hearts and draw them back to the table again so that, so that uh, they could know what salvation uh, is and clarity in their life. Father, as we gather together around the Lord's table today, would you use these emblems, this uh, cup and bread uh, again today to remind us of Jesus' body broken, his blood shed. And that's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Rise, you receive communion this morning. Mm -hmm.